Welcome to episode seven of Breakout Culture. I am Ed Vasey and I have the honour and the privilege to be the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf and I'm the associate editor at the magazine. We are very excited to have the world famous cultural polymath Lloyd Grossman on the podcast later, but we're going to start by telling you about the Chelsea History Festival, especially relevant to our listeners since Country and Townhouse is distributed throughout Chelsea. Well, thank goodness we learnt about the festival when we did, as it's already started. But there's much more to look forward to as it runs until after next weekend. There are lots of talks online with world-class historians and writers, William Dalrymple, Anne Applebaum, Philippe Sands, Adam Zamoyski, Michael Morpurgo and Charles Spencer. But the real reward for those of us wanting to break out and get out a bit is that the beautiful Chelsea Physic Garden is open free, so long as you book online, for the whole of next weekend, where they're having all sorts of events there from music from the band of the scots guards to story time for kids brilliant how fantastic well the scots guards once did a parade around wantage uh, market square when i was the mp they were randomly given uh the freedom of wantage because somebody in the town liked them they have zero connection with wantage at all <laughs> although weirdly their colonel was a school contemporary of mine anyway i digress because, well, I don't really digress because we're talking about the army. Many of the talks and panels are taking place in the National Army Museum on Royal Hospital Road, which has recently been refurbished to a very high standard. And you've got brilliant, I mean, look at this, it's amazing. Ben McIntyre, uh, the historian and author who everybody absolutely loves, talking about Agent Sonia, of course, who famously gave away nuclear secrets to the Russians. Uh, I don't think that's libelous because she's dead. Uh, a panel discussion on Bletchley Park. I've visited Bletchley Park, the most amazing place. If only somebody would give it £150 million to properly restore it. I agree. There are, there are also some wonderful walks around Chelsea. One on Chelsea's Sikh history. One on the borough's trees. Another on the impact of the Blitz with Dr Emily Mayhew. And then one titillatingly entitled Saintly and Sinful about Chelsea's historic residence from nuns and monks to royal mistresses. You don't live in Chelsea, do you, Charlotte? No, <laughs> I'd love to. <laughs> well, why that line made me think of you. That's quite enough, Ed. Um, it looks as if it's going to be a very exciting few days for the borough. And the creative director and the person who's pulled it all together is Harry Parker, who's here with us today. Good morning, Harry. Good morning, Charlotte. Morning, Ed. Thanks for having me on. Well, we're very pleased to have us with you. And I know you're perfectly placed to organise this because you've got a background in both the army and the arts. So tell us a bit how you dreamt up this festival and what you think are its main highlights. Yeah, so I was, um, I was asked to come on board, actually, by the founding party partners who are the National Army Museum, the Royal Hospital Chelsea and the Chelsea Physic Garden. And we've got loads of other partners from around the borough as well. But they brought me on last year. We had our first one in 2019 and they sort of said, you know, you've got, you know a bit about the army because I, I served um, for about 10 years. Uh, but also I went to art school and I also wrote a book after I left the army. So I had a sort of bit of an idea about festivals and, and, and how it works and what a green room should look like and things like that. And uh, so they got me on board and yeah, this is our second year and obviously it's a bit more challenging this year, but it's just so great to try and bring people to this amazing part of London. Uh, you know, it's that bit between the sort of King's Road and the Thames where there's, you know, it's sort of blue, blue plaque central. There's just blue plaques everywhere. Um, and it's also really beautiful, you know, Christopher Wren uh, designed the Royal Hospital 
uh, and there's just it's just a lovely part of the city. So you are in fact James Blunt. You uh, served <laughs> in the army and then became an artist. So which came first, art school or the army? So so I w- I grew up thinking that I wanted to be a fine artist. It was my sort of dream, and I got to the end of university where I actually ended up set studying history of art and um and and was looking around for a job and i worked in advertising for about 30 seconds um and then and then went into the army so tell us which regiment you were in harry i was in the um i was in the rifles uh, for most of my career i started as a, a royal green jacket and then the the regiment uh, amalgamated and i became a rifleman um and served in iraq and afghanistan uh for about 10 years yeah so and i was then injured in afghanistan so i went through a slightly strange time when i was at headley court and uh rehabbing and sort of learning to walk again so i had a sort of slightly strange career in the army but i nonetheless it was it was a really positive experience for me and tell us about the national army museum my mum is a huge fan of it as well and it has been refurbished even though it's been and it's been open since 1960 what's it like now so yeah it was refurbished a few years ago and it's open again it's just got a, it's a, it's sort of architecture now really a lovely place to come and visit even if you're not that sort of interested in the army and there's also something for everyone i think you know there's the sort of society gallery which really talks about how the army interacts with society there's soldier which is more about the soldiering and the history so there's really lots for everyone can you just tell us a bit about the main events that are going to be on at the in, in both the physic garden and in the museum yeah, sure. So um, we've got a number of speaker events. In fact, we've got loads of events. A lot of them are online for everyone. But we're just trying to do a few things each day in our in our venue inside the National Army Museum. So on Wednesday evening, we've got this Bletchley Park sort of um, collaboration. So we're so we're collaborating with the Bletchley Park Museum, um, and there we're going to talk about the role of intelligence in the Second World War. So it's it's one of those events you can you can book you can come down to and our, our venue which normally has about two hundred people in is now sort of forty people all socially distanced so that's great and then um, on Friday we've got two live events one about the relationship between uh, Norway and 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 the and the UK in the Second World War and then Agent Sonia which Ed just talked about earlier and then Saturday the twenty sixth is our big day that's when the physic Physic Gardens open uh, for the public and it's norm- normally sort of membership and ticketed so it's lovely that it's open for everyone. Um, we've got the Band of the Scots Guards doing their first performance uh, since lockdown um, and and for that people just have to book tickets to the guard and then it's a sort of a sort of drop in almost. And then there's lots of stuff for the kids as well. We've got pond dipping where you can come and see dip in and see some tadpoles and flatworms and pond sails and things like that so that's a really great one for the for the youngsters and then uh, there's a there's a thing uh, called planting mustard and garlic which is which is a bit of a history session for 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 the children about how how the garden really is about had this medicinal side to it and then in the national army museum we've got loads going on as well we'll have some of the talks beamed live in the car park but also we've got um what have we got in there? We've got Bright Sparks at 11 and 2, which is which is an event by our team here about gunpowder, about the sort of history of gunpowder and the Civil War, and there's sort of bangs and flashes, and there's a little bit of audience participation as well. So that's a really fun one for the sort of 7, seven to 12-year-olds, uh, and maybe even younger. Um, so that's a really great one. We've got the Countess of Wessex String Orchestra at 1. We've got marching drills. We've got somebody who'll come and drill everyone all the kids make sure they're you know teach them about drill and why it was important in the army um 
And we've also got a Beethoven recital at 4, 4 p.m. where we've got the um, director of music from the Royal Hospital who's going to come over and do a sort of Beethoven uh, 250th anniversary. And then later that evening, we have, a, we have a talk with Ruth Padel and Laura Tunbridge, who are both authors and historians about Beethoven. And that's a ticketed event in our venue. So that's our sort of... History Fe- Chelsea History Festival Live, and we're really looking forward to just trying to do something for people who've been cooped up or, or want to come and sort of, yeah, experience some culture. So we're really excited. Well, brilliant, because that's what this podcast is all about. So thank you so much for coming and telling us all about it, Harry. Thank you very much indeed. It sounds absolutely brilliant. And uh, the festival itself is brilliant. And also great plug for the National Army Museum to remind people that there's a wonderful venue they can go and visit outside of any festival. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you very much. So you can get all the information about how to book if you go on to the Chelsea History Festival's website, chelseahistoryfestival.com. Now, before we welcome our guest Lloyd Grossman, with Ed's permission, I just do need to enthuse briefly about the concert version of Jesus Christ Superstar at my favourite theatre in the world, which is Regent's Park Open Air Theatre. I went to see the show the week before last and it was simply sensational. I have to admit I've seen the show several times and because of social distancing they've now staged it as a concert but it's so so much more than that. It's just the most uplifting glorious 90 minutes you could possibly have. It's still on till the 27th so I advise you to kill for a ticket and also start booking now for anything the theatre has on next summer because I've yet to see something there that I don't like. Also, Charlotte's reminded me that there are still tickets left for the English National Opera's driving staging of La Boheme at Ali Pali. Again, uh, I think we've covered this in the podcast, actually, with Stuart Murphy, the artistic director. That's running again until the 27th. And if you don't have a car, they've done a deal with Uber. So you can hire a static car or even go on a bicycle. So uh, you're going to go, aren't you, Charlotte? Yeah, I'm going on Thursday, four of us in my mini. So I'm really looking forward to that. And I'm so glad we did have Stuart Murphy on this podcast. I might not even have known about it. And thanks so much for inviting me along, Charlotte. (laughs) I didn't think you'd want to squidge into my mini, Ed. (laughs) Anyway, back to Ed to introduce the wonderful Lloyd Grossman, whom we're extra keen to have on as he's been a listener right from the start. Can I just say quickly that when I told our producer Alex that Lloyd was coming on, he got very excited because apparently he was entirely brought up on Lloyd's past sources. Wasn't everyone. (laughs) But he's not here today to talk about his sources, but to talk about his new book, An Elephant in Rome, which is about how Pope Alexander VII teamed up with Benini to create the most splendid and most visited Baroque city of all times and the book is just one string to his bow the saucy dr lloyd grossman cbe is a man of numerous talents from television presenting where he made his name with show like master chef and through the keyhole to writing he even plays guitar in his band the new forbidden which has made several appearances at glastonbury he's chairman of the royal parks president of the art society a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. There's no end to what he can do, and he's here to tell us why he loves Rome and to talk about absolutely everything to do with culture. Welcome, Lloyd. Thank you, and I'm really flattered that you described my television presenting as a talent. (laughs) It is. uh, I was interested that our podcast producer loves you for your pasta sauces. I have some... This may be an apocryphal story, but I have a childhood memory 
not that you're old, Lloyd, you're very, very young, but I have a childhood memory, you were just very successful, very young, of um, on my mother's desk, seeing a response from Lloyd Grossman, which was a postcard, which had a series of boxes that you could check, because you used to get so much correspondence, the only way you could answer them was to send back these uh, pre-printed responses with, uh, and you check the box, is that right? The one that I liked ticking the most was, um, Lloyd Grossman, thanks for, you for your, <laughs> thanks, thanks you for your letter, but regrets he cannot enter into further correspondence. <laughs> <laughs> Is that from anyway, the Green Ink Brigade? <laughs> hopefully, you can, hopefully you can enter into further discussion, but let's start with the book that you've just published about Rome and Benini. Tell us why you love Rome so much. Well, I think Rome is is such an extraordinary city. You know, London to me is unquestionably the greatest city in the world. But I think Rome is possibly the most fascinating city in the world because it's a place that has been really very central to Western civilization for a couple of thousand years. And it's very apparent. It's, it's the classic city that's like the layers of an onion. You know, every time you think you've got to one layer of Roman history, yikes, there's something underneath it, which is even more interesting. And Rome has this incredible juxtaposition of centuries and cultures and events, which is almost un unequaled in any other world city. So it's an endlessly, an endlessly enthralling city. And every time I go there, and I've been going there a, a heck of a lot for nearly 30 years, every time I go there, I discover something exciting and inspirational and beautiful that I'd never even thought of before. And it's got absolutely rave reviews, your book. And they're not even sort of fake ones on Amazon. They're genuine reviews <laughs> from genuine art historians and people of distinguished letters saying this is one of the finest books they've read. Tell us a bit about it so that all the millions of people who listen to this podcast can immediately <laughs> rush out and buy it. Yes, well, I mean, I just hope we can keep the printing presses working hard enough to satisfy your <laughs> listeners. Um, but certainly I can guarantee everyone that their requests will be delivered before Christmas if Christmas is allowed to happen. Yeah, the book, really, what, it, what, it, what I wanted to look at was this incredible burst of activity that happened in Rome in the mid-17th century. This was largely the result of a collaboration between a not-very-well-covered pope, Pope Alexander VII, and Gian Lorenzo Bernini. Now, Bernini is an artist who is really not very well known in the English-speaking world. I mean, yes, he's known to art buffs, but he's hardly top of mind uh, for most people. And this is kind of interesting because the 17th century is the century of some of the greatest names in European art. You know, it, it's the century of Vermeer and Rembrandt and Rubens and Velasquez. Yet, when they were all alive, unquestionably the most famous, most successful artist in all of Europe was Bernini. Bernini um, was an incredibly talented sculptor, painter, architect, town planner. He wrote plays, he designed operas, etc., etc., etc. And he was very lucky to have a close friendship with Pope Alexander VII, who in those days was the most important patron in Europe Alexander VII was one of the few people who could both commission and pay for anything he wanted he wanted to do. So this fantastic double act really transformed Rome into one of the world's first great tourist attractions and made Rome a place that 
everyone had to visit if they wanted to be considered a civilised and sophisticated person. Now, talking of tourism, um, Lloyd, I'm very interested in finding out from you as an American from Marblehead near Boston with such an expansive cultural overview, how the Italians, the Brits and the Americans view culture. Do we all look at it completely differently? Yeah, I think we do. In America, culture is very much like a sort of polished gemstone. You know, there are lots of sort of cultural trophies that are incredibly well looked after and that have money lavished on them by philanthropists. Italy has a very different attitude because Italy has so much culture. I think that the uh, UNESCO once calculated that Italy has more significant culture per square mile than any place in the world. And the Italians quite often um, treat their culture with what I would call sort of benign neglect. They don't mind if They don't mind if it's sort of shabby and rough around the edges because they've got so much of it. And that also shows the fact that in Italy, culture, you know, whether it's what we would call high culture like opera or more sort of accessible forms of culture, everything is kind of available to everyone. Italy is much more culturally democratic, I think, as a society. And Britain is kind of halfway between the American attitude and the Italian attitude. We have an enormous amount of culture in this country. We fight very hard and struggle very hard to keep it in the best possible condition because we have this wonderful legacy of being the country that invented historic conservation and invented the heritage movement. But sometimes we find that we just can't keep up with the demands of all the cultural institutions we have, and that causes us to have these great national crises of conscience. So I'm interested in talking to you a bit about the Royal Parks as well, because going back to Rome, I think they closed their parks during the coronavirus crisis, but you were extremely keen as chairman of Royal Park to keep our parks open? Well, it's been a pretty extraordinary time. I mean, the Royal Parks um, really, you know, it's 5,000 acres of the most extraordinary landscape in the world, concentrated in the middle of the world's most important and significant city, stretching all the way from Richmond and Bushy in the west to uh, Greenwich in the east. And the Royal Parks very much define London as a city, their distinctiveness and their beauty, and also their their usefulness because one of the things we found during lockdown was the, the the fact that people were desperate for open space they were desperate for fresh air they were desperate for national for, for natural beauty and of course in london like so many other great cities rather unfortunately a, a great deal of space has been privatized a great deal of space has been monetarized the great thing about the parks all parks is the fact that they're open to everyone we had a bit of a crisis because some local authorities began closing their parks and threatening to close their parks. Keeping those spaces open for the public really was an absolutely vital service at a time when there was very little else for people to do and there were no other ways for people to express in a lockdown situation a sense of community and citizenship. And to me, one of the, the, the greatest things about the Royal Parks is that they provide a space where people can be on a level playing field, where everyone can be a citizen. And this is something that is increasingly and distressingly rare in contemporary society. So true, so true. And well, Lloyd, I know that you're generally worried about that and the future of cities. 
um, especially as so many of us are moving out to the countryside and suburbs post-COVID, including you, because I know you're a huge fan of both Norfolk and the Cotswolds. But what is it about, before we get on to that, what is it about cities that you think so important to preserve and how on earth are we going to do it? Well, I think, however you look at it, probably the single greatest thing that humanity has invented is, is the city. And the, the city is this incredible place where ideas can flourish, where people spark each other off, both, you know, in artistic and commercial terms. It's the, it's the coming together of so many different people from so many different backgrounds and situations that makes cities an incredible generator of creativity and, and innovation. They're also, in many ways, highly energy efficient because, of course, when you, when you bring clusters of people together, there are a lot of savings that can be made in, environmentally, provided we deal with all the associated issues of, of pollution. If the city center declines, one of my major concerns is that much of our culture will decline with it because it's cities that have generated museums and opera houses and concert halls and restaurants and libraries and where cinemas can be, et cetera, et cetera. So cities are the great platform, the great foundation, which enable our cultural institutions to flourish. And if the city is weakened, I think our culture is weakened. So we, we've got to look at how we reinvent the city in the light of this pandemic, whether the pandemic is going to cause Permanent changes in people's behavior is very arguable, but we have to be prepared for a major reinvention of the city. And what might that be? Well, all predictions about the future are absolutely useless. <laughs> and, you know, I like the, uh, I forget who it was who said that the only thing we know about the, the future is that all events will have a beginning, a middle and an end, although not necessarily <laughs> in that order. So, you know, I don't know whether people will come back to high-rise office buildings, for example. But then again, if we look at, let's say, the example of 9-11, after the destruction of the World Trade Center, people will say, oh, no, no one will ever build skyscrapers again. We've built more skyscrapers since 9-11 than in all the centuries beforehand. So, it's very hard to predict how people's behavior will or won't be altered by a traumatic event. Will we have lots of low-rise ground scrapers? Maybe. Will lots of skyscrapers somehow be converted to residential space? I don't know, but we've got to give some serious consideration to how the city goes forward. So I know, I know one of the things um, you, you were concerned about when we talked earlier, Lloyd, was about places like the Albert Hall. Well, the Albert Hall should be the most COVID-friendly venue because it has... I think 12 separate entrances, all of which can be sort of closed. And all those boxes, you could have six to a box. It's got 6,000 seats, which, you know, so even if you had it socially distanced, you could probably get at least 1,500 people in. But it's very frustrating. I've also come across one or two people who've come up to me with ideas of pop-up theatres, which naturally they want to put in the uh, Royal Parks, which, you know, designed from the ground up to be COVID safe. But it is obviously a tremendously frustrating time very difficult partly because you can't just say on monday everyone can go to the theater on saturday because it takes theaters it'll take them months to get back up and running yeah i mean what what worries me is how we replace what has been a very successful model 
for funding our cultural institutions, where I think I'm right saying in, in saying it that for at least the last 20 years, the idea has been that government funding to cultural institutions should decline gently and that the difference should be made up by encouraging the cultural institutions to be more commercially minded and generate more income apart from government grant. And this has worked very well because when the economic wind's blowing in the right direction, everyone has benefited from that. Now that we are headed off a cliff economically, I'm not sure that any of our cultural institutions can generate enough commercial income to keep going at the level to which we've become accustomed. And certainly government are not going to be able to significantly raise the amount of money they put into culture because they've got to spend so much on everything else. So step forward angels, theatrical angels and concert angels. We really need our culturally sensitive billionaires to step up, don't we? Trouble is now you can't, I don't think, rely on philanthropists to fill the gap. You need government to step in. I mean, they have put aside 1.5 billion. You need government to step in and basically fund these venues for the next year just to keep them ticking over until we can find a way through. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that the 1.5 billion is necessarily enough. I mean, gosh, it's welcome. And isn't it great to get one and a half billion? And, you know, going back to the the mixed model, which we had, which I think ultimately is probably going to be the, the, the way forward again, the increased entrepreneurial capacity of our cultural institutions has, I think, been very beneficial to the public. Because, yeah. you know, every museum now, every cultural institution has a much better bookshop, they have much better catering, they offer a much better experience for the, the the audience. So it's been a great success. And I guess if we can just make sure that the government safety net is going to be there for the next couple of years, we should be okay when we get on to the other side. Because of course, all of these cultural institutions are an extremely important part about what makes Britain work as a, as a country economically. You know, our great drawing card is not really the weather. It's our museums and galleries and, and, and concert halls. And, you know, they are a vital national asset which have to be protected. Absolutely. Yeah. Lloyd, Lloyd, you've been amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yes, thank and you. Everyone and everyone must now go straight onto Amazon and buy your book or to your yes. local bookshop. It's called An Elephant yes, in please. Rome, just to remind everybody. Or, or your... <laughs> good local independent bookshop. That's all we got time for this week, but next week we'll be telling you all about the Cheltenham Literary Festival. Remember that, it's still going, so please tune in again then. Meanwhile, there's a brand new online edition of our magazine on our website at countryandtownhouse.co.uk, where you'll also find our other podcast, House Guest, which is all about interiors with Carol Annett. You'll also be able to subscribe to our newsletter, which both Ed and I highly recommend. We love your feedback, so please keep it coming. Leave your comments on the podcast channel or email us at breakoutculture at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. See you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.